You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. What kind of life lessons or themes do we see in Spider-Man No Way Home? Maybe you could see the need, the great necessity for a plethora of Spidey suits. Maybe you can see the, the pulling together across all of the movies within uh, the, the Spider-Man name and the, the emphasis on that quote, with great power comes. Yeah, yeah. But there's a particular theme that I think we see within this movie that is really worth honing in on, and it's on friendship. So what does Spider-Man No Way Home show us about friendship? I think we could use a one-liner to explain that friends can help us to become the better versions of ourselves. We see that within the movie. We need friends. It's not a new concept. It's not something that Marvel or Disney came up with within the last year. You've grown up learning the value of friendship from kindergarten and maybe even before, if you're one of those children who went to uh, pre-K and Head Start and all of that. But we actually see this within the Bible, that it, it, we're not saying that this is a Christian movie. Pastor Brent has reiterated that with every uh, message within this series. We're not saying that all of these creators and the filmers and the, the script writers and the actors and actresses are Christians. But what we're saying is that God sovereignly, within his truth that he has set, from the world's foundation, that he determines what is right and what is wrong, and that he created us with some awareness of that. And so even if these creators of this movie had no intentions of pointing back to God, we see glimpses of who he is and his principles of truth and his desires for his creation within the film. And I'm excited to talk about that today. So if we haven't met I'm Keevan Carley. I'm the youth director here, and I'm glad to be with you guys. If you're joining in online, welcome. We are actually closing this series today, and I have that, that honor. And uh, back when I was running track and field in college, sometimes I would anchor the 4x4, four four, and that meant that there was a lot of pressure because you have the ability to lose the lead or to close the gap if you're already behind. But I believe that Pastor Brent has set us ahead in a lot of ways, so hopefully I can finish strong. So when we see this movie, Spider-Man, we see that he embraced some new, new and old friendships that allowed him to not only pour out and give love as he did in the previous two movies within this trilogy, we know that he was always sacrificing himself, his desires, his livelihood, but we see that in this movie he also received love from those friends, that his friends helped him to become the best versions of himself, meaning that the other Spider-Man, if you have seen the movie, you know that we brought back, or they, not we, I didn't create it, they brought back in Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield so that all three could be in this film, and those two Spider-Men helped this Spider-Man to be the better version of himself. But then also, his, with the help of Ned and MJ, he became a better version of Peter Parker that these friends came alongside him to support him in the ways that he needed support, to encourage him when he needed it. I was talking to a friend recently, 
and I was sharing with him and, and just vulnerability, I, I told him, hey, man, you encourage me to be a better man. That I can look at your life, I can see your faithfulness to God, your faithfulness to the church, your faithfulness to your wife, your faithfulness to your children, and then every other ring outside of that, I see your faithfulness and it inspires me to do the same. Do you know that that's God's design for his church? That what we see in Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, as Paul writes, he's encouraging sound teaching and Christian living, saying, hey, you need to teach correctly and so that the followers of Jesus can hear good teaching, but that then it's not just coming in one ear and out the other, but that they will live it out. And this is what it looks like. That God's design for the church is that within the family of God, there be fellowship within friendships and discipleship relationships where you can look at another person and see their faithfulness to God, demonstrated through their faithfulness to their family, and in every other circle that they find themselves in as employees or business owners or as parents or grandparents or as volunteers and et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on, but all of this is to say that we see their faithfulness, and it's not to, to worship them or it's not to assume their perfection, but that actually these people, like my friend did, We'll turn around and point it right back up to God and say, man, I, I'm glad that you're encouraged. I'm glad that you can look in my life and see faithfulness. But man, you got to understand, I haven't always been faithful. It's only because of God's work in my life. It's because of his faithfulness that you can look at me and see any good, any fruit being born in my life. It's because of his faithful hand in my life. That is what the church is to do. And this is worth emphasizing because here in our multi-ethnic and multi-generational church, we have blessed opportunities for those relationships to take place. If we so choose to lean in, to press into them, to embrace them. One prime example being, as Pastor Robert mentioned earlier, that connect groups are starting back up this week. That men can get along with other men and find one man or, or reach out to the men that they already know and say, hey, I want to follow your example. I thank you for the example that you set. That they can call one another up and say, hey, man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. In these areas, please help me. That sisters can call up another sister and say, hey, I, I know you've been through this situation, and I'm going through it right now. Help me understand how you made it through, because I feel like giving up right now. That these relationships exist and should be embraced within the church. Because we know that life isn't all about celebrations. And yes, we have people to celebrate with within those seasons. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But that God's design for friendships is also to support one another through the suffering that we experience. Through the pain that we face. That these friends help us to bear our burdens and overcome temptations. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 17 reads, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a difficult time. When do you need a friend the most? It's not on the mountain high. When life is great, and my generation back in the 2000s, we would say when everything was peaches and cream, and someone, I said that in youth recently, and someone thought of an old song back in the day, and, and I won't go and try to sing it, but uh, it's really not pertinent to this at all. But <laughs> when life is going well, <laughs> when life is going well, yeah, sure, we, we want friends to celebrate with. But it's when life hurts that we really, really need the most support. 
Because when life is great, when we're on that mountain high, we don't have to find somebody to celebrate with us. Usually people will come and flock around us, especially if that celebration involves money or fame or some type of fortune. Again, going back to the early 2000s, the prophet Mike Jones said it this way, back then they didn't want me, now I'm hot, they all owe me. That's pop culture, but it's still pointing to the biblical truth that we see in Proverbs 19, verse 4, which isn't on the screen, but you can write it down, maybe you're familiar with it, that it basically explains that with wealth and fame and prestige and all that comes with it, it attracts many friends. That people will flock around you when you're on the mountain high. People will see your success and they want to gravitate towards you. And that actually brings us to our first clip today. That within this movie, in this time, it's, it's early in the movie, but Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and his friends, they are feeling the ridicule from Peter Parker's identity being revealed as Spider-Man. And now, because of all of that attention, they're applying for schools, they're about to graduate from high school, they're applying to college, and they have this dream to go to MIT. But the door gets closed on them. Not just Spider-Man, not just Peter, but his friends as well because of their association with him. But somebody steps in trying to join in on what he hopes to be fun, and we'll take a look at that and see how it goes now. You guys didn't get in? Yeah, because we're actually friends with Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. I better get going. There's a, a mixer for new admissions, and sorry, guys. So we see Flash. If you remember from the previous two movies within the trilogy, there were particular uh, scenes where Flash was the bully of Peter Parker. He would always bully. He would push him around. He would say mean things to him because Flash hated Peter Parker, but Flash loved Spider-Man. Flash didn't understand that the two were the same person, so whenever he was around Peter, he'd be harsh and crude, but then when he was around Spider-Man or he would see him, his eyes would light up, he would gloat about how awesome uh, Spider-Man is, and he wanted to be his friend, so now that the identity has been revealed and Flash now sees that the two are the same, it's been a game changer. He's trying to boast in his friendship, but the friendship doesn't actually exist. We all know how fast fake friends come and go, but when we're going through tough times, that's when friendships are exposed. True friends will remain with you even through the toughest times. Our true friends will stick around through hard times, but the fake friends will move alone. So I, I want you to, to think and consider, examine your life, examine your relationships. Who's that friend for you? Who is that friend that you can call on confident that they're going to listen to you when you need to talk? Do you have friends that are not afraid to get deep and to even pursue this vulnerability and intimacy with you? Even if you don't initiate it yourself, they will initiate the conversation so that they can talk through the painful, uncomfortable things that maybe you're afraid to bring up yourselves. I know that Ms. Carla Gerard, she asked this particular question, and maybe you've been on the receiving end, maybe you're one of her sisters that she challenges, or, or as part of our congregation and members, you've brought difficult, weighty things to the table, and she responds gently but lovingly in a way that, that just challenges you to really think before you answer. When she says, how's your heart? How's your heart? That's not a question that you can quickly blow past, like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good, man, I'm blessed. Too blessed to be stressed. No, how's your heart? Are you discouraged? Are you anxious? 
Are you saddened? Which friend can you rely on to tell you the truth that you need to hear to help you choose to do the right thing when you're tempted to choose wrongly? We need friends who will see past our blind spots and challenge us. And we see within the movie that Peter had these types of friends. And we'll see this in this brief clip here. Guys, isn't about this whole spell thing. It's totally okay. Wait, really? Yeah. I mean, I get it. You were just trying to fix things. And so maybe just run it by us next time, you know? That way, when you're thinking, hey, I'm about to do something that could break the universe, we could, like, help you. You see, the irony within this movie and all the movies within this series is that you could just sit and watch and be entertained. And it's fine to do that at times. But as we've been unpacking these movies and, and trying to, to see them through the lens of Scripture, that there's more layers there that allow us to, to take and walk away with however much we're willing to receive. And so in this scene, we see that if a superhero needs friends in his life to help him through the crazy but fake things that he goes through, and yet he's willing to embrace that. He was surprised, but you saw the delight that his friends were saying, hey, no, 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 don't try to go about this on your own. Count on us. Pastor Robert just said it about giving in, in our, the area of our finances, that we can walk with the wise, that we can see the wisdom of others and say, no, 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 I want to be like that. Let me lean into it. Let me press into it. Let me ask questions. Let me invite them in with vulnerability and say, hey, this, this, these are my finances. This is my financial situation. Can you shed some light on what you do to help me to progress further in faithfulness? Spider-Man did this in regards to his battles that he faced. And if he fought fake battles, then hopefully you and I can press in deeper to this movie and add a layer and realize that the real challenges and conflicts that we face mean that we also need friends. Spider-Man experienced losses of fake loved ones within the movie, but you and I can relate to what we see on screen because important people in our lives have passed. Spider-Man sometimes felt lonely, and maybe you're in that place right here today. So again, you and I, we are in need of good friends. I came across this Swedish proverb with a graphic, shout out to Naomi, she posted this on Instagram, and maybe you've seen it on Instagram. We're going to work through it a little bit because the, uh, if you don't know, a, a background in uh, psychology and social work. So the, the clinical side of me says, well, you can't trust everything on the Internet. So I went and verified all of this with someone who is up to date within their clinical skills because I've been out of practice for some time. But I, I do think it's worth talking through. The, the quote says, shared sorrow is halved sorrow and shared joy is double joy. And so that's shown within these circles here, that when you experience joy, a joyous occasion, maybe a, a, a marriage or a new relationship, maybe a child has been born, maybe you're celebrating a birthday or a new job, when you experience that joy as an individual, it's a smaller circle. It's still joy nonetheless, you experience that and it's great. You, you have the, the happy feelings inside of you and that's great. But when you share that joy, you go and share that news with someone else. You call somebody up and say, hey, I got the job. And they start celebrating with you. Man, that's awesome. They give you a Robert Rios, woohoo! And you're like, man, yeah. Sometimes I look at Robert, I'm like, man, he's celebrating more than me. 
But that encourages me to celebrate even more, to further recognize the blessings within my life. You have people like that. But the relationship on the other side is adverse, where if you experience sorrow as an individual, it's magnified. You could be going through the worst events of your life, but if you're going through it alone, it'll feel like it's all you see. You're stuck with your anxious thoughts. Everything that you are experiencing, all of your sensations are telling you that this feels like death. But when you share it with someone else, it's having. It, it cuts smaller because other people are there alongside you to bear the weight of the burden, and they carry it with you. But there's something important about this that, that we have to realize that this is, this is mostly true. It's mostly true, but it can be wrong. If we could keep it on the screen for a while, I want to walk through this. As difficult and painful and exhausting as sorrow may be, and as great and satisfactory as joy may be, it doesn't increase or decrease respectively if the people that we're sharing it with can't actually hold the weight. You know those people that you share joyful news with, and they basically respond, oh man, cool, good for you. And it's like, um, did you hear me just say that I, I just got out of debt? Like, maybe you're having a bad day. Maybe you're looking with, with, with anger and jealousy because you're still in debt. I, I don't know what it is, but I believe that the Bible tells us that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, and you're not really living up to that right now. That's not joy doubled, even though it's shared. And unfortunately, it's true on the other end that you can experience sorrow, and you can call up a friend and say, man, I really need to talk right now. I'm going through it. I've lost my job. My spouse, I, I, I don't know what's going on, but I, I don't know if we're going to make it. My children, they're, I just want them to know Jesus, but their lifestyle just looks the exact opposite. My friends are all abandoning me. And as you're sharing this with vulnerability, the person on the other line goes, man, pull yourself together. Listen, what I think you should do is, listen, that's not all that bad. It could be worse. When that person that you're sharing with, it's quicker to offer suggestions or to minimize your situation than they are to offer compassion and empathy, your sorrow is not having. Sometimes it's even more intensified and magnified. They're not able to carry the weight with you. We can share some bad news with someone in hopes of being heard, maybe even comforted simply by them acknowledging and affirming, affirming the difficulty of our situation. But when they respond in a way that doesn't uphold the weight that we're asking them to bear with us, it hurts even more. My point is this, shared joy cannot be doubled and shared sorrow cannot be halved if the friends that we share with are not capable of carrying the weight we hold. 
Scripture calls us to bear burdens with one another. But if I'm holding this load and my shoulders are getting tired, but you're not willing to, to come and say, here, I'll take some of it. Instead, you're just telling me to lift my hands higher. That's not the relationships that God has intended for us to have. And even on the reverse end, if I'm worshiping and I'm celebrating all that God is doing in my life and my hands are high and I I come to you saying, man, praise God with me. Look at what he's done. I don't want just a high five. I want you raising your hands right there with me. Hold mine with me. Say, yes, Lord, we praise you for what you have done. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, uh, Emotionally, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, it's a book that we've read here as a church a couple years ago. We had a sermon series titled in My, in My Feelings, where we went through chapter by chapter that book, and I believe we're about to do a little bit of a remix of that series. It had the, the, the subline, the subtitle, I guess, or, or tagline, that it's impossible to be spiritually mature and emotionally unhealthy. Let's figure out what that means in regards to our friendships. It means that we can only love others as well as we love God with all that we are. We know that that Jesus summarized himself that the greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if Jesus is basically saying love God with all that you are, it means that we can't withhold our emotions. Even if it's the way that we were raised, we can't say, I don't don't need to examine how I feel. Feelings aren't important. If they weren't, then why would God give them to us? We have to be curious about those things and say, hey, how how am I feeling about this situation? Not for the sake of, of just going in with the culture and the trends and the embrace of mental health and emotional health, but no, in recognition that this is instruction from our Lord, that we're to love God this way with all that we are. And that is the only way that we're able to then love others. You're not going to love others well and bear fruit of the Spirit if you're ignoring your own impatience, your own anger, and the emotions that you feel within You're not therefore going to be able to support your brother or your sister and your friends as they share in those same emotions. You will minimize them because that's what you do. You bury it under a rug. You brush past it. You're ignorant of the sadness and the sorrow in your own heart, and then you're not able to acknowledge the very real sorrows that your brother or sister are experiencing. You're not able to mourn with those who mourn. I believe that there's a scene within Spider-Man towards the end that really shows the, the complexities of this. That it's not easy to just simply say, all right, yeah, 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 I'm going to mourn with those who mourn right now. That we get it wrong sometimes. A safe bet is to just listen, but even in doing that, we're sitting there thinking about, man, how should I respond? But we'll see how the other Spider-Man and how MJ and Ned responded to Peter's suffering in this scene. I got what I wanted. It didn't make it better. It took me a long time to learn to get through that darkness. In this scene, we saw 
Tom Holland's Spider-Man mourning the loss of his Aunt May. We saw Ned and MJ just hugging him, silently being, being great friends. And then we see Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man coming in, trying to, to be supportive in the moment. And as they try to explore all of the, the complicatedness of the situation, they just sat and listened. They offered shared experiences eventually. And we even saw Andrew Garfield kind of began to a little too quickly. But we saw them being supportive as friends. In Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, we see a, a beautiful display of friendship. It'll be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. We'll read through it now. It says, on one of those days while he was teaching, that's Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. And the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Immediately, he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. We've taught this passage several times here within the In Focus Church. I know Carla has taught it at the collectives. In this story, we see Jesus teaching in, in a room or a house of sorts where it was a packed crowd, so full that no one could get in. And four friends are carrying their, their fifth friend who is paralyzed. He was a layman. He could not walk. So they were carrying him on a stretcher. And at some point, they devised this plot, this plan, where they all had enough faith to say, hey, we just need to get him to Jesus. We've just got to get him to Jesus. Jesus can do something about it. Maybe they've heard the stories, how he had healed before this, and they said, hey, you could be a part of that, but you can't get there yourself, so let's get you there. I want us to, to just kind of slow down a little bit and, and think about the, the logistics and the strategy that had to come within this plan. We don't know exactly where they were coming from or how far the distance was between where they were and where Jesus was, but at the least, they're walking a distance. But not only are they walking with their own persons, now they're carrying a man, don't know how tall he was or how, how much he weighed, but if you could imagine four corners of this stretcher, a man holding each corner, 
And now they're walking the distance. So there's strength plus stamina required. Surely they probably didn't know exactly how long Jesus was going to be there. So now they're factoring in, man, how many bathroom breaks do we get? They're trying to figure it all out, but they're committed to the plan because they know that they just need to get this man to Jesus. In one of our final scenes, we see how Peter's friends commit to the plan to move forward and trying to help all of the villains that had come through to the universe. Wait, really? Dude, I got Dr. Strange magic. Yeah. And I promise you, I won't turn into a supervillain and try to kill you. Okay. We see the friends committing to the plan. They had previously, uh, off camera in this scene that we've clipped, they had previously discussed like, hey, this is what we're gonna do for, uh, or Doc Ock was already fixed, but Green Goblin, we're gonna do this, and then for the Lizard Man, we're gonna do this, and the Sand Man, we're gonna do this. I know I called him Lizard Man. I think Caleb would probably be upset with that. But anyway, they had discussed all of this, much like I'm guessing these four friends discussed their plan to try to get the paralyzed friend to Jesus. But then they also eventually faced obstacles. Just like Peter Parker, and Mary, or MJ and Ned, they experience the obstacles as they're trying to fight off these villains and try to cure them. But these friends got to this house that Jesus was in. It was crowded. They couldn't get in. So now they're figuring, hey, if we, we, we're not going to abort. We're not going to abandon ship. We're going to get you to Jesus. So let's climb the roof. We'll dig our way through and lower you into Jesus. We're going to make this happen. Again, imagine the strength it takes, not just to climb a ladder, but to climb a ladder with a stretcher with four people. I don't know how they did it. Maybe they say, hey, hold on to my back, and then we'll climb up, but now we still got to get the stretcher up. So much logistics, so much effort, so much intentionality. I think what it all shows us is that the best friends that we can ever have will not only walk with us through hard times, but they will also bring us to Jesus. They won't just walk with us through hard times, although we need that. We certainly do. Those who will listen with compassion and with empathy, who will also ad offer advice and, and wisdom in proper timing. But we also need people who will straight up bring us to Jesus. These four friends could have been good friends who carried the paralyzed man where he needed to go, they could have ran errands for him, they could have offered him food and a place to stay, and they would have been great friends for it but they were the best friends who said, no, we're going to get you to Jesus. Again, who are these friends for you? Who are they? What kind of friend are you? Are you the type of friend who would have abandoned them and said, hey, man, look, we tried. Let's just go back home. Or are you the committed one that says, no, we can climb. We can figure this out. John 15 verse 13 says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Where, yes, we see that the best friends will bring us to Jesus, but in Jesus' own words, he's describing that true friendship will embody sacrifice. It will embody sacrifice. And the irony of all of this is that we see that Jesus is defining true friendship right here. And that we see in Proverbs that a true friend 
seeks closer to a brother, or closer than a brother. And Carla has taught this before. She's brought home for us that in this story in Luke, the four friends aren't the hero. They provide a great example of friendship that we can and should try to embody ourselves, that we should be sacrificial, that we should be committed to bringing others to Jesus, that we should be committed to serving, that we should be committed to loving. But they're not the heroes. Ultimately, it was Jesus who provided the healing. But if we take a step back and look at this story and all the imagery that it brings, but we copy and paste a, a, a filter and we say, well, well, let's look at how Jesus embodied this level of friendship. That even in Jesus' response to the man, that he called him friend thereafter. What a friend we have in Jesus. We can look at Jesus' life and ministry and see that he embodied even greater sacrifice. He embodied even greater compassion and empathy. He embodied even greater strategy and intentionality. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And verse 17 tells us that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that it may be saved through him. We see that Jesus, therefore, kind of like these four friends who are carrying a paralyzed man, who could do nothing in and of himself to get himself to Jesus, that Jesus carries us. Jesus carries us to the Father. Jesus first carried his cross up on the hill where he laid down his life, sacrificing himself. But through that act, through his perfect life, his undeserved death, and his resurrection three days later, Jesus carries and brings us to the Father, that those who believe in him shall be saved. That's even greater than these four friends. But Jesus, through coming to earth in the form of man, descending from heaven to earth, taking on the sufferings that we experience, that Jesus wept as he's mourned the loss of Lazarus, that Jesus experienced the temptation from Satan in the wilderness. Jesus experienced the same sufferings that you and I face, and he didn't have to. He was God in the flesh. He did not have to experience these things, but as he took on flesh, he experienced and brought this on himself compassionately, therefore understanding what we experience and being, being able, therefore, to empathize with us as we suffer. Carla likened this in the story of Luke, saying that it's like Jesus would have laid down on the mat with the paralyzed man. It's one thing to carry him and say, yeah, I'll help you out. I'll get you there. It's another thing to lay beside somebody in their suffering and saying, I'm going to lay right here with you. I will cry with you. I will mourn with you. I will sit in silence and suffer. I will sit in prayer. I won't move until you move. I'm right here with you. That's the compassion that Jesus had. Jesus could have blinked and said, no death around me. I ain't experiencing that emotion. I don't want sorrow. But he took it. And just as he healed the man and forgave him of sins, Jesus brought us to the Father, and it's through his blood shed on the cross that you and I can experience this same forgiveness. My hope 
is that as we close, that yes, you're examining yourself, you're thinking about your own life, your friendships, maybe asking who that friend is that you can call up. Maybe you've never called them up before, but you've got the plan right now that after this service, you're going to run and try to find them if they're here, or you're going to reach out and send a text or a phone call and say, hey, listen, I, I need us to be closer, closer than we already are. That you will examine yourself, consider which type of friend you are, that you will pursue the intentionality that these four friends embodied that we see on the screen, but that we ultimately see in Jesus and say, man, I want to have that intentionality. I know my friend is suffering and I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to pursue her. I'm going to reach out. And even if they close the door and say, don't try to talk to me about that, then I'm still going to sit with them, that I'll lay on the mat with them. But even more important than all of that, that you will consider the friend that you have in Jesus that you will cry out to him, that you will seek refuge in him. As David did in the Psalms, that, that we will cry out and say, God, you're my rock and my refuge. Here is what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm suffering. Here's what I'm anxious about. That you will go back and, and rewatch those, the sermon series on lament that we had last year and, and say, man, I, I need to revisit that. I need to turn to God. I need to bring my complaint. Because in order to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, he wants me to include all the emotions and the feelings that I experience. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from. And visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.